Good morning, church. It's good to hear you singing, and we're going to study God's Word together as we open our Bibles. Guess where we're turning? Acts chapter 2. One more time, Acts chapter 2. So if you'd follow along with me, I'm going to start reading right where we left off last week, so beginning in verse 44. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So the gospel doesn't just give us a confession of faith, it gives us a community of faith. And that's one of the things that becomes prominent as we study this particular passage, is it's a community, a tight-knit community of faith. In his novel, uh, The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, Steinbeck tells the story of the largest exodus in American history, the, the, the migration, the Dust Bowl migration, as it was referred to in the 1930s, a barrage of dust storms hit the high plains, Uh, 7,000 people died and two and a half million people were homeless. And so there's this mass migration of people. The ecology was disrupted in the area. There's no way to sustain life in this place. And so everybody's heading west. Many of them heading west toward the Salinas Valley in California and, and so forth. And he captures that story and kind of retells that story through fictitious characters. Grapes of Wrath, it's not an allegory. I mean, John Steinbeck is not Bunyan. It's not the same thing as Pilgrim's Progress and other Christian allegories. It's not about the people of God. But if you know the story of the book of Acts and the story of the early church and what they were up against, if you know the situation, the harsh conditions that the early church was facing and how this kind of common ordeal and a sense of common mission drove them forward and it galvanized this community in a powerful and profound way. And if you know that about the New Testament, some sections of Steinbeck's novel almost read like allegory. Here's one section. The cars of the migrant people crawled out of the side roads onto the great cross-country highway. In the daylight, they scuttled like bugs to the westward, and as the dark caught them, they clustered like bugs near to shelter and to water. And because they were lonely and perplexed, because they had all come from a place of sadness and worry, and because they were all going to a new mysterious place, they huddled together. They talked together, they shared their lives, their food, and the things they hoped for in the new country. In the evening, a strange thing happened. 20 families became one family. The children were the children of all. It might be that a sick child threw despair into the hearts of 20 families, 100 people, that a birth in a tent kept a hundred people quiet and awestruck through the night and filled a hundred people with joy in the morning. A family might search its goods to find a present for the new baby. In the evening, sitting about the fires, the 20 were one, a guitar unwrapped from a blanket and tuned, and the songs were sung in the nights. Men sang the words and women hummed the tunes. So one of the things that we do as a church family, I referenced this last week, is at our faith family gatherings, we, 
we recite our church covenant together. Church covenant is just a well-written church covenant is a church covenant where you look intently at the New Testament and you write it based on things that are clear about how the church related to one another so that then as a local church family, you can say, this is our covenant. This is what we're promising to do for one another by the grace of God. That's why we read it on a regular basis two or three times a year. Well, one line from our church covenant reads this way, quote, we will share each other's joys and bear each other's burdens. So we've seen in the past two weeks that what these early disciples did, they did together. They shared life. They learned together. They prayed together. They met together. They ate together. They go to large gatherings together at the temple. Then they splinter out all across the city to small groups, basically, to informal gatherings around tables where they encourage each other and have fellowship and pray for one another. And so a local church is a family of faith. So one of the things we've seen these past couple weeks is it's not just gospel doctrine that's held high, though we looked at that and focused on that two weeks ago. Gospel doctrine is held very highly. But it's not just that. There's gospel culture that reinforces and that fleshes out their gospel doctrine. So then the question becomes, if they had a gospel culture, kind of an ethos, there was a way that they did life that reminded you of the good news, then the question is, what kind of culture was it? And so the first thing that we're looking at here this morning is there was a culture of generosity, bearing and lifting burdens. Bearing and lifting burdens. You see there in verse 44, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. You back up into verse 42 and it tells you they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That word, the fellowship, it could be translated they devoted themselves to the sharing. That's what that means. It was, it was a sharing. There was a sense of togetherness about this community of faith. You can see that in verse 41. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and then those who were baptized were added to the church. So you just think about that in modern Christianity. It's a little bit different than in places where there's harsh conditions and there's reasons to not be a nominal believer. When there's persecution up against you, odds are everybody who goes into the water better be a real disciple because you might lose your life for it, right? Well, here in the West, it's a lot different situation. So here in the West, in modern Christianity, if 3,000 people come to receive Jesus and repent and believe in Christ, about half that number is going to go into the waters. And then of those who go into the waters, about half that number is going to come up out of the waters and join a local church and become a member of the local church and be all in in that local church. Not so in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it was 3,000 people were cut to the heart. 3,000 people said, what must we do? 3,000 people repent and got baptized. 3,000 people came out of the water and said, we're all in count us in for the life of this local church. Whatever we're into, I'm into. Count me in for gathered worship. Count me in for corporate prayer. Count me in for sacrificial giving. Count me in for shared mission. I'm all in. I'm here and I'm all in. I'm a part of this people. It's not, church is not the plural word for Christian. No, it is a people. It is a community of faith. And, and they, were, they were all in in so many different ways to minister to their community. The, the downcast, the downtrodden in their communities. Matter of fact, there was a first century practice called exposure. And that just basically was the practice where if somebody 
had given birth to a child and they didn't want the child, they would expose the child, which means just leave the child in the woods. Well, guess what the Christians would do? They'd walk through the woods daily. They knew the places where children were often left and they'd walk those places on a daily basis and just listen, listen for crying children. Then they'd go scoop them up and say, now you're ours. It's the early church. Nobody had to twist their arm. Nobody had to tell them this is what you're supposed to do. They did it instinctively. The gospel created a culture. If you were a member of the church and you were hit by financial crisis, you were going to be taken care of. There's no question. You're going to be taken care of. If you lost your home, we've got 50 homes in this church. Just pick one. You can stay with us. You can stay with them. You can stay with the Jones. You know, whoever it is. Like, you can stay with us. You've got a place. You're in a church. What are we going to do? Leave you out in the cold? That's unthinkable. You're a part of a family. Verse 45, you see it? They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So it's not a merging of assets, but it's an eagerness to meet needs. Not a merging of assets, but an eagerness to meet needs. So I'm, even in the way that's worded, you can tell I'm tempted to qualify to death what this isn't. What this isn't is it's not a commune you know, where everybody, it's a, you know, we pool our paychecks. Nobody's got their own private property. It's not your house. It's Brook Hill's house. No, it's, it, that's not the way it was. But, in, but instead of qualifying to death and talking about what it isn't and, and getting comfortable with all the caveats of what it isn't, let's get uncomfortable with what it was. Because there's plenty of room to be uncomfortable with what that early church was. It was a group of believers, note the words, who sold their possessions to provide for the poor in the church. The poor among them. That's a picture of the church. The culture of the church is a loving, compassionate, merciful community of faith. And you think about some of the some of the cultural elements of what the early church was into. They were into generosity, but I think they were into something that was upstream of generosity, namely gratitude. I think the gratitude is what fed the culture of generosity. When, when we drive into our neighborhood, when we first moved here and we drove into our neighborhood, uh, we started to realize that there were deer in our neighborhood. That was new to me. I grew up in New Orleans. I had never seen a deer until I was 20-something years old, right? My wife grew up in the country. She had seen deer. She, she knows what it's like to live outdoors, right? And so... Um, so when we were driving to our neighborhood and we would see a deer cross, we'd hit the brakes and Paula would say, wait for the next one. And so often, that was exactly true. We'd stop because a deer's running around the road. She'd say, say wait for the next one, and here comes another one, 20 yards behind, because they often travel in pairs or travel in groups. Well, there are Christian graces, if you will, that run together. And, and two Christian graces that are travel buddies are gratitude and generosity. You see gratitude running across the street, you say, wait for the other one. Because here comes generosity. It runs with gratitude. It, it follows behind, 20 yards behind faithfully. Here comes generosity, always running with gratitude. Well, why? Think about it. Gratitude to God is what happens when we remember that he is our ultimate provider. You know, the Old Testament, they would sing themselves deep into that conviction. They would sing to a God whom they called Jehovah what? Jireh. Jehovah Jireh, meaning the Lord who provides. God, they did not have this clear, sharp distinction 
that we think about in our own culture, even sometimes as Christians, we think like atheists. As Christians, we think, yeah, you know, God provides my salvation. He forgives my sins, but I bought this house. I earned this. This, is, this was all my responsibility, and I brought, I made it rain and got us this stuff, right? No, that's not how the Old Testament believers thought. They said, no, we have our responsibility, but God is the one who provides. That's why Jesus even said, when you pray every day, pray to the Father who gives us this day our daily bread. It's not like you bought the bread because you earned a paycheck. You, you got the bread because the Father gave it to you. He ultimately is the provider. It's his faithfulness that supplies our needs. And so as we become more thankful, we become more generous. You see thankfulness and you say, wait for the next one. Here comes generosity. We're blessed in order to be a what? To be a blessing. In other words, the blessing doesn't stop with us. It only starts there. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. So our giving is a tangible display of our shared life and shared mission. That's what our giving does. On a regular basis, when we regularly give in the offering, it's a tangible display of our shared life and shared mission. So just think about it. This is a little bit later in the same book, Book of Acts, chapter four. It's gonna be on the screen. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. That is just stunning giving. And, and here's the crazy thing. There's no series on tithing. There's not a 10-week series, a twist your arm. There's no arm twisting going on at all. It's just downstream of grace is generosity. Grateful to God, we know he provides, and therefore we're generous. You know that commercial that comes on every holiday season, and it's a commercial with all the maimed animals and the, and the super like syrupy background music. And, and the reason we have to watch that commercial every single holiday season is because it works, <laughs> right? All the dog lovers who watch and see that dog without an eye running across the screen with the sad music playing in the background, the dog lovers hear the music, they see the one-eyed dog, and they say, take all my money, right? And, the, and that's why we get to see it again this Christmas season. <laughs> Here's the crazy thing. Acts chapter two, Acts chapter four, there's no commercial, there's no background music, there's no one-eyed dog, and yet the people just say, Take the money. I got this property. Take it. Are there people in the church who have needs? That's why they laid it at the apostles' feet. They said, we assume that you guys know all the needs that are going on in our church. I think y'all keep a list of the widows. Can you make sure that this money finds the widows that are in need? That's why they did it. Nobody had to twist their arms or make them or guilt them into doing it. A gospel culture says, freely we have received Freely we give. You know how we get free of the love of money? We give ourselves free of the love of money. It's, an, it's like a muscle that you exercise. You exercise the muscle and we're becoming more and more free from finding security in our wealth. You think about it, nothing motivates God honoring giving more than grace. Guilt will not fill more offering baskets than grace will. And if you say, I'm prepared to call that bluff, well, okay, if guilt does fill the offering baskets more than grace does, we have a problem. And it wasn't worth it. (laughs) 
If the offering baskets got more filled by guilt than by grace, those gifts were pulled from unwilling hands. Those gifts were pulled as a tax for Christian goods and services rather than the smaller offering in this case, which was given by hearts that have tasted God's grace. I'll take the smaller one. I hope opting, as we do as a church, for grace-motivated giving will lead to greater giving. But it's a risk I'm willing to take. I hope we're all willing to take it. I'd rather smaller offerings if they're given by willing and cheerful hands. But is grace motivating us in giving? In regular and sacrificial giving? As we give regularly, can we look at those resources that we've given and and say, does this look like sacrifice? Does this look like I'm willing to come out of pocket to serve my brothers and sisters and the needs around our city and around the world? Here's some of what scripture says in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter eight, the apostle Paul, he's talking about a church and the need that's being, that they're collecting offerings from multiple churches to give to a church that's in desperate, desperate need. And he said, during a severe trial brought about by affliction, there, so this is a particular local church, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That is a mouthful. Abundant joy, extreme poverty, generosity, a wealth of it on their part. Verse three, I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. In other words, this is a This is a particular local church that said, Apostle Paul, you need to know this has not been a great year for us financially either. We've been in extreme poverty, but we know our brothers and sisters are starving. Don't you dare not pass the plate when you come to town. We're begging you, don't count us out. From what we do have, we will give. No arm twisting. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter nine. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. That's the Apostle Paul basically saying, turn off the background music, stop milking people and manipulating people to make them give. Tell them about grace and see what happens next. And what often happened next was people joyful on their way to the offering baskets. Can't wait, please don't count us out. Let us be a part of what God is doing in and among the church. It's a culture of generosity, bearing and lifting burdens. Second, it's a culture of welcome, food, friends, and bigger tables. You see verse 46, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food, so these are normal meals. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So we see here a picture of the church, the early community, and they're not just at the temple, but now it's a picture of them and they're at home. They're in your home, they're in my home. This is believers meeting together in home. Food is spread across the table. You overhear what's happening in that house and you hear laughter and joy. Sincere hearts and gladness is what you, what you heard. One of the most unsung graces in the New Testament is hospitality. Isn't it interesting that in the list of things that 
elders must have in order to be qualified for the role of pastoral work is they must be hospitable. That means it has to be obvious that they care about people. It has to be obvious that they love being around and welcoming people. Here's what Paul says in Romans 15. Now, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ also has welcomed you to the glory of God. Talk about big shoes to fill. When you welcome one another as believers in the local church, it should feel like the welcome of Jesus himself. The way Jesus spread his arms wide and said, come to the table, the table is full, the feast is ready, you don't have to buy anything. Everything's provided. And Paul says, do that at home. <laughs> Try this at home. Try the welcome of Jesus in your own house. I have so many memories growing up of uh, times in our home with other believers. People from our church family, missionaries who were itinerant missionaries who were passing through or, or ministers who were traveling through our area. And I just have so many memories of times around our table, sharing, eating, laughing, playing games, board games, enjoying one another's company. Our kitchen table must have, over the years, must have hosted hundreds of different people. It was a small kitchen table, it was a small house, um, but we would just expand, just put other tables around the living room and they'll hear us in the same, in the room just adjoining our kitchen. Church members would be in our home on a regular basis. There was a, a very poor man in our church who we just called him Brother Dave. I, I, to this day, I don't know Brother Dave's last name. He was blind from birth. He had some other perhaps physical needs. I don't know what those were, but I, ju I just remember um, the way it materialized in my mind, looking through my immature eyes as a child, is I just remember he didn't have table manners. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't use a fork. Uh, he would use his fingers. And I remember there was, on the plate, there was all this, uh, all this really buttery corn on the plate. And then it wasn't on the plate. It was on his fingers. And then it was, it was around his mouth. And uh, my dad's sense of humor just hit Brother Dave in, in all the right places. And so my dad would say something funny, and Brother Dave's mouth would just put, and there's all that corn again, right? It's just... <laughs> Uh, just butter here and here. And, and so to me, it was kind of like, I'm just sort of, I'm trying to enjoy this meal, but it was harder for me as a young, as a kid. Um, here's the thing. My parents didn't have Brother Dave over to teach us. They had him over because he was my dad's friend. He was not a project. He was family. And that's why basically the message that came through in years later as we grew up and looked back on it is they were saying to us, as it were, as kids, Brother Dave belongs at this table. It's our family table. And he's in our church. He's family. He belongs here. Something about the church, it was a beautiful thing. It goes back 2,000 years. They belong here because they're family. Gospel formation, what's it involve? 
it involves this, the guests become the hosts. The guests become the hosts. You, th- you think about the movement of redemptive history. So Genesis chapter 12 is the hinge of the whole Bible. Hinge of the entire, everything after Genesis chapter 12 happens in light of Genesis chapter 12. What happened in, in Genesis 12 is God appears to Abraham, the patriarch of the faith. Everything's downstream of God's work and the patriarch of the faith. God starts making promises that aren't just going to apply to Abraham, they're going to apply to Abraham's children, his offspring. And not only to his offspring, but all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. I will bless you, he said, so that you will be a blessing. One of the great 20th century scholars who's now with the Lord, his name is Ed Clowney, and he said this about Genesis 12. He said, when God told Abraham he would be blessed to be a blessing, God changed the status of Abraham from a guest on the planet to a host. And that's a great metaphor, isn't it? Because you know the difference between being a guest at an event and hosting the event. Just think about it. What does the host do? The host sends out the invitations. The host decides who's going to come. The host sends all those people directions to our house. They send them the, the home address so that everybody can find their way there. The, the host meets you and welcomes you at the, very, at the front door. The host says, it's cold outside, it's warm inside. Give me your coat. That's what the hosts do. They show you around. Here's where the bathroom is, right? They introduce you to others. Here's some other people in our house. That's what hosts do. You, if you come in as a guest, you don't come in and start doing all that stuff. But if you're a host, it's on you. All of those roles fall to you. Well, what happens when the gospel comes and changes our lives? It moves you from the guest to the host. He brings us into the faith family and he turns us into hosts. Now we're the inviters. Now we set the table. Now we meet them at the front door. Now we take their coats. We show them where things are and we introduce them to other people. It's the life of the church. And the church, in a word, needs are met. And then meals and friends and room for more. And God is praised. That's what's going on here. Just look again at your text. Verse 46. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. So there's the meals and friends. We already saw needs are met. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. That's what we mean by room for more and God is praised. They're, they're, they're praising God all in the midst of this. This is all redounding to the glory of God. And yet God is adding to their number. So the tables just have to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger because God keeps adding to their number. We saw last week how in the Gospel of Luke, in a way, it's framed around Jesus just having meals with people. And it makes sense because Luke says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And so Luke just lets you see him eating and drinking with this person, eating and drinking with that person, inviting himself to eat and drink with that person. And then he rises from the dead. And what's he doing? Flipping fish on the beach, saying, boys, come over, right? It's Jesus eating and drinking. It's enacted grace all through the gospel of Luke. The Spirit of Christ then is poured out on disciples and instinctively, what do they do? They start doing exactly what he did. He prayed, they pray and depend on the Father. He gathered around meals in the homes of people, they gather around meals. 
They share everything. So it's shared life, shared burdens, shared needs, shared blessings, shared tables. Everything is shared. And by the way, you didn't see people at a common table like this in first century in the radically stratified environment of first century Rome. You sat with your ilk. You sit with your kind. You sit with your people. Not when you came into the fellowship of the church. It was Jew next to Gentile, slave next to free, rich next to poor, male next to female. Everybody's saying pass the mashed potatoes and they passed it one to the other. You didn't see this anywhere else in the empire except in the church. Why? Because this shared meal was a glimpse into the future. This shared meal was a pointer to God's coming world. If I can be real for a second, I think it's... um, It's easy to come into the church and find friendly people. It's harder to find friends. Isn't that true? Sometimes it's hard to find friends. And and sometimes not everything is fixed by just more teaching. Teaching is good. Teaching is central. I'm not going to take back any of the things that we said these last two weeks when we talked about the centrality of the word of God. But it's possible to be taught 200 feet deep and still be lonely. It's possible to be a part of a church of thousands of people and still feel completely alone. And so we have texts that give us not just gospel doctrine, but gospel culture. Years ago, um, when I thought that theology and books solved all the problems, and I really did, I really thought theology and books fixed everything. And I remember somebody saying to me and just owning up and admitting, um, I'm depressed, they said. And, um, and I said, I've got a great book for that. I literally, I literally went and bought them a John Piper book and handed them the John Piper book. And, uh, and then I followed up because, you know, the books say you're supposed to follow up. So I followed up about a week or two later on, just as, How, how's the depression? <laughs> and they said, it's worse. And I was like, that's not possible. Uh, maybe read it again? I'm not sure what to do here. Uh, but the book is always, especially... A book from John Piper, how can that not help? How could that possibly make things? I just had no category for that, right? That was blowing all my categories. Here's the thing. Some people don't need to be fed more truth. What they need is friends. What they need is someone who will sit with them in the ashes and the wreckage of what's just happened in their life, who, who won't make them their project, but will welcome them to the table. Let's have fun. Let's be friends. Come to the table. Here, there's another challenge on the other side of that, though. You, you, start to, uh, you start to go deep with friends in the church, right? Great things are happening. Small groups are going deeper. Small groups are becoming places of true friendship where you're knowing others and you're being known by others, right? And then the problem on the other side of it is, you know, what can happen is this. We have the world's best small group. It's so amazing. I hope you can never get in. Isn't that the case? Now that we're in, how convenient (laughs) that all the relationships are deep. Lock all the doors. Good things are happening. It's like, that's not Acts 2 either. Acts 2 is there's joy and sincere hearts and the tables keep getting bigger. We're going to need more homes because the Lord is adding more and more people, more more and more tired people in the Roman Empire want to sit at those tables they've heard about. Slaves saying, you sit with the rich people? You sit with the, the masters? Like, that doesn't make any sense. 
That's what I mean by bigger tables. I love this quote in Tim Chester's book, A Meal with Jesus. He starts it out with just two words, marzipan cake. That's how my friend Chris knew his mother-in-law had finally accepted him into the family. Now every cake she bakes for him is a reaffirmation of that acceptance. That's how food so often works. We enjoy food not just because of the taste, but because of the companionship and welcome it expresses. You know, I learned something this week about, I love words. I learned something about the word companionship. I didn't know this, that it's, it's two words combined. It's the Latin word cum, which means together, and the Latin word panis, which means bread. Companionship is us together around bread. From the beginning, they broke bread. And what was it yielding? Friendship, relationship, connection, community. I think one of the most staggering verses in all the Bible is found in Luke chapter 12. And it's staggering because Jesus is talking about when he comes back and he's saying, be ready when I come back because something is gonna happen. Here's what's gonna happen. He says, be ready for service and have your lamps lit. You are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. Blessed will be those servants he finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he, this is Jesus himself, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. That is stunning. While on earth, Jesus said to his disciples, just so everybody's clear on why I'm here, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The shocking thing is when Jesus comes again, he also comes not to be served, but to serve. It's Jesus, the picture of Jesus. He says, I'm gonna come back, and the first thing I'm gonna say is, sit back, find the best recliner in the house, I'm gonna come pour the drinks. I'm gonna come, you need seconds, don't move, I'll be back in a second. That's the picture Jesus gives of his return. The master is serving while we're reclining. What if our houses, what if our tables pointed to the joy and belonging that we will enjoy in the city of God? Here's what the gospel has done. It has converted you. You're not a guest anymore. You're a host. And now that we're hosts, what's your next move? What's a host gonna do? Your next move is start inviting. Who do you invite first? First.